Welcome to the Want to Learn Podcast. I'm your host, Franz Tapon. In this episode, I interview Richard DeLong. He is an expert in Eastern Europe. He has been living in Eastern Europe for most of his life, and he has lived in various countries. You'll hear a bit at the introduction of this first episode, but you should definitely listen to all four episodes. In this first episode, we talk about how the Ukraine war will end and who could replace or would replace Putin, and if Crimea will ever be returned to Ukraine or not. Will Russia use nuclear weapons? And why actually Russia might want NATO to join the fight, as paradoxical as that sounds. He gives an explanation as to why that theory might be true. In part two, you'll hear about how Ukrainians and Russians are different from each other. In part three, we talk about the Transcaucasian Trail. And in part four, we talk about whether Russia will balkanize, in other words, whether it will break up or not. I hope you enjoy these episodes. And now, Richard DeLong. Welcome to the Wander Learn Show. I'm your host, Frank Stapon. I'm here with Richard DeLong. First question I'm going to ask him is, how will the war in Russia and Ukraine end? But before we do that, let's find out why he is a good person to ask this question. Richard. <laughs> so, um, tell us a little bit about your experience in Eastern Europe. So I've been living in Eastern Europe for most of my life at this point, even though I was born in the U.S., and that includes one year in Slovakia, two years in Russia, nine years in Ukraine, and now coming up on 11 years in Georgia. So that's one part. The other part and is... And you're only 20 years old. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Of course. <laughs> A bit older. Uh, and I speak fluent Russian, Ukrainian. Um, more or less fluent Georgian and some other languages from the region and outside of the region. So languages are a big part of my life, big part of my professional activities. So we're going to take away yes. your U.S. passport now because clearly you're like a de- you have defected to the evil empire. Uh, practically, yes. Yeah, I keep I keep the passport, but I have another one too. Okay, good. Which is the other one? Georgia. Oh, yeah. oh, you yeah, yeah. That's right, because getting residency is here is relatively easily. It's, it's like you can get a one-year visa just for travel visa, just like by, by default, everybody, right? It has a one-year visa-free policy, and over the years getting citizenship... For what countries? Sorry, I'm talking about Georgia. No, I know, but... Almost any country. Almost any country yeah. can almost come here yes. for a year. That's why all, That's of, all of Russia is moving in. <laughs> a lot, but actually Georgia is one of maybe a list of five or six countries that are open to to Russians at this point. Okay. So there are others as well. But okay. yeah, there are lots of Russians in, in Georgia. How long does it take you to get months. citizenship? So it's now more difficult. At the time, um, it was quite easy. In fact, I know someone who 12 or 14 years ago simply filled out an online form in a few minutes, emailed it off, and she got her Georgian passport by mail a couple of weeks later. So it's it's been going from that extreme level of simplicity to gradually getting more and more complicated over the years. That was back in the day with Saakashvili. That was back in the day when Saakashvili basically offered citizenship to everyone. Got it. And at this point, it's now gotten Why quite was he doing that? What, what was the logic? Uh, interesting. So he was a young progressive leader who wanted to make big changes in the country. And one of the ways he did that was by opening it up. Mm-hmm. and trying to attract foreign interest in the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, first, in the interest of uh, anyone who would come and visit and 
uh, see the country as, as a fresh new, uh, at their new beginnings, and also foreign direct investment. Okay. So, um, yeah, and Georgia continues that policy to this day as far as being inviting towards foreigners and, uh, yeah, almost anyone can come here. There are a ton of freelancers. It's a great place to live and be centered because it's surrounded by Europe, the Middle East, Asia, Africa. It's kind of in the middle of, it, of everything. It is in the center of the universe. That's right. <laughs> Every country is in the center of its own universe. <laughs> that was my con- in the conclusion of yeah. my book. I wrote that. Um, anyway, so let's get into the meat yeah. of the, the topic, which is the Ukraine war. We're recording this in Georgia, in Tbilisi, the, the capital of Georgia, not Atlanta. And <laughs> how's the war going to end? Yeah, the wars can... Uh, th- sorry, sorry, mm-hmm. I, I made a mistake. Yeah. The special military operation. Of course. <laughs> that uh, some Russians mistakenly call a war. When they Shame forget, on them. When they forget their prompt. <laughs> um, How do you say war versus special military operation in Russia? Vaina is war. Vaina? Spetsalna vajenna operace is SVO or SMO. In English, special military operation. Oh, they actually have an acronym for it. Yeah, <laughs> because they have to say it so often. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay. So, how's it gonna end? Your crystal ball. Your foggy yeah. crystal ball. <laughs> so, I know I'm gonna be wrong, but yes. uh, let's lay out two main scenarios. You can assign percentage probability sure. to great. that to make it more yeah. clear. Your thinking. Yeah. So, ninety percent chance I'll be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Just be so safe on yourself. Say yeah, 99. <laughs> 10% left for my two scenarios. Exactly. So, scenario one is that uh, Russian society cannot handle the, the losses in, ter- in human life. Uh, there's increasing tension between military factions, between the FSB, which is the... It's their um, um, KGB descendants. Essentially, yeah. Yeah. And the army. So there, there are tensions between these different groups. And then there are private armies like the Wagner group. Mm-hmm. And they're all taking part in the war. And uh, there's a lot of uh, dissatisfaction among different groups. Um, and there's an attempt by the Kremlin to uh, finally set up proper organization of all these different structures. But uh, there's a lot of tension. Uh, Russian society has been... Uh, has been subject to a lot of propaganda, or let's just say framing of the military operation in a particular way. So mm. people who are going off to war, they are convinced they're going to fight fascists. Mm. They're convinced they're going to see Nazis there. Right. And uh, they're often surprised by what they see. They're surprised by the poor reception they get from the local population. Mm. They're surprised by how poorly they're equipped, how poor their own organization is, how their leadership drops them off in locations and often doesn't give them clear instructions or doesn't properly equip them. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, I'm repeating stories that tend to reach other countries. Uh, there's right. kind of a, an information filter. For example, if you're fighting an enemy, are you going to convey to the outside world the intercepted phone calls that show your enemy as competent, uh, kind, or neutral at least, objective? No, of course not. Right. So we're... We're dealing with uh, information that's skewed, and we have to realize that. As they say, the the first victim of war is truth. Yeah, yeah. 
But uh, I think there are ways that you can kind of triangulate the information that you're getting right. to get an objective picture. Well, that's why I'm so excited to yeah. talk with you, Richard, because you can actually... I can't listen to Russian propaganda. Right. Yeah. I can only listen to Western propaganda. Mm -hmm. And that's what it is. We have to remind ourselves, yeah. which is what you're doing, which is that, you know, hey, what we're getting is, is, a, level, is a certain level of propaganda. And it's yeah. hard to figure out. And you are well-suited because yeah. you have a foot in both worlds to kind of yeah. take your best guess. Because, of course, like you say, you don't know 100% either. You could be wrong, too. Yeah, you know, when I argue with people on Twitter from the West... Who, you argue on Twitter? Nobody argues on Twitter. <laughs> who would do that? What a waste of time. But uh, people in the West who are against the war and have a lot of uh, uh, pro-Russia, let's say anti-Ukraine ideas, they assume that everyone is watching the same Western media. They assume that I'm watching... Western TV or something. That's simply not the case. Right. Uh, I'm, uh, uh, I follow a bunch of military experts. Uh, I'm listening to the intercepted phone calls that, uh, that mm -hmm. pop up. I'm watching the, uh, the Russian propaganda, reading people's analysis of propaganda. Uh -huh. I'm listening to the updates from the Ukrainian military specialists and so forth. So I'm getting a lot of different sources. And if you're uh, rooting for the Ukrainians um, and you hear information about how the war is going poorly for the Russians from Russian propaganda, I mean, that's a very good sign. Absolutely. So if the uh, propaganda the, right. of the other side is confirming the information that you have... Right. Um, I agree. That that is one of the ways that you can sure. triangulate. Absolutely. Your, your no, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so let's get back to your scenarios yeah. Your, yeah, and yeah. your percentages. Okay, so, so scenario one is that uh, Russian society internally cannot handle the death, the, the toll, the death toll, mm -hmm. and so people are coming back very uh, angry from the war, mm -hmm. angry about how they've been they've been uh, mistreated. Tricked by their, yeah. mistreated by their own leadership, perhaps tricked and so forth. Uh, also, all the people who are being drafted who don't want to fight in the war, right. and they're being forced, and this just heats up. It's like a water, it's like a pot being brought to boil. Right. And at some point, that just breaks up. Right. Uh, so the, the country breaks up, the leadership breaks up, there's some sort of coup, or they just move uh, Putin aside. But, but roughly first half of 2023. Uh, yeah, let's say that. That's, that's the time frame for that. Okay, yeah. fine. And what's scenario two? Uh, scenario two looks worse for Ukraine. And that is if Russia continues targeting energy infrastructure mm. and other key infrastructure that makes the winter very difficult for Ukrainians, mm -hmm. uh, such that millions are forced to flee the country, mm -hmm. creating a humanitarian crisis. Mm -hmm. uh, let's say uh, the winter is also very bad for Europe, mm -hmm. not just in terms of heating and energy, but let's say there's a global financial crisis. Mm -hmm. uh, we know that Europe and other markets are not doing very well financially. Mm -hmm. uh, some currencies could blow up. Uh, there could be protests regarding inflation. Uh, there could be, I don't know, a blow up of the bond markets and stuff like that. Um, and I think Russia is counting on that and hoping for that. And if there's unrest in Europe to the point where the politicians can't keep things together, and there's a Ukrainian humanitarian crisis at the same time. And there's a lot of discord about whether to support Ukraine and how much support to give. Uh, things could 
just become very protracted and it could turn into an even greater humanitarian disaster than it is. What I'm trying to say is that one is worse for Russia and the other one is worse for Ukraine. Definitely. Right. Yeah. So the so what do you assign the probabilities of each? Would you say mm-hmm. 30-70, 70-30? So between those two, yeah, I'd say... Uh, I'd say 70-30 in favor of uh, Russia's internal collapse. Okay, got it. All right. And who would replace Putin if that were to happen? Um, It depends at what stage the collapse occurs. Mm. So the later the collapse occurs relative to the military position, Mm. the greater the chance of a, a true realignment within Russia. So if, if Putin were replaced today, he'd probably be replaced by some even worse military hardliner. Mm-hmm. But if he's replaced uh, seven, seven months from now... Mm-hmm. When, uh, let's say when presumably they may have lost... Uh, that's right. So it's more territory. In, in other words, the greater the military defeat at right. the time when whoever takes over collapse right. takes place... Mm-hmm. Uh, the greater the chances of a completely new power arising in Russia. Got it. Do you think that uh, when the dust settles, Ukraine will retain Crimea? Hmm. Um, And should it, because of its historical association with Russia for the last couple hundred years, I suppose, after they kicked out the... So it it absolutely 100% should remain with Ukraine. Okay. The reason for that is because it's not a question of history, it's a question of international law. Okay, conventions were broken. There were many different uh, breaches of, uh, of international law conventions, right. also the be- breach of trust, the manipulation of the referendum, and so forth. In international law, and in the consti- according to the constitutions of different countries, there's always a legal solution to these things. So, for example, if uh, after Crimea returns to Ukraine, there's still a, there's a strong organic movement towards independence, autonomy, or reunion with Russia, then there are legal ways of resolving sure. this issue. Just like Sudan separated, South Sudan separated from Sudan. Well, you, you, could, have, you could have uh, like UN oversight. Yeah, You'd sure. have a proper referendum, including right. all the people who were present in Crimea. At the time. At the time. So 2004. everyone who lived in 14. Crimea before 2014 right. can participate. Right. No one who moved there after can right. participate. Right. Etc. Etc. Right. So observing all the the proper which is really legalities, <laughs> but if you want to do it fairly, Understood. and legally, and right. one of the points of this war is justice must be restored, right. and that's what's at stake for the West. And just to remind people who are listening, Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons, with Russia saying, "Give us your nuclear weapons, and in exchange, we will promise your territorial integrity." Yeah, we will we'll respect the borders, guarantee your, your guarantee sovereignty and, and your security. And security, and right. so that was an utter betrayal of that. Of course. Absolutely, right. Yeah. So I understand your point. Great, um, but you think it will get it back? Realistically, um, because I mean, I think so. Okay, then yeah, the next question is: so. Is when does Putin or Russia push the nuclear button, if they do? And in what way? What percentage yeah. chance do you assign that there will be a nuke that's dropped in Ukraine? Yeah. Well, here I defer to the military analysts who have been studying Russia and the Soviet Union for decades, who are versed in nuclear deterrence, and they understand what's happening behind the scenes. 
So we can't just go by what Elon Musk thinks. Or Why not? With someone, someone else who thinks who's just uh, operating on the most superficial logic. So the, the nuclear issue, I mean, has decades of history behind it. Right. Um, there's decades of thinking behind it as sure. well. Decades of game theory. Yeah. And you, um, also there are people who study Putin and his power structure. Right. And who say that um, he would use it only if it would allow him to preserve power in Russia. Okay. So explain to me how the use of a nuke would strengthen his hold on power in Russia. You don't um, have to answer. I'm just giving it's a rhetorical. You a difficult question. Yeah, yeah. no, I understand that. But the only challenge with that is that we're basically... It's like, are we trying to get into Putin, old Putin's mind or the new Putin's mind? Because I feel like he's mm-hmm. evolved as a person. I don't mm-hmm. think he's the same leader today as he was 10 years ago. And so he has gotten distorted in some ways he used to be i always viewed him as a very shrewd calculated person who Mm -hmm. who knew his limits and was very incremental in his uh strategy uh now he seems to have gone off the rails i I respect his intelligence i can't seem to like convince myself that i'm fucking smarter than he is Mm -hmm. yeah i just can't believe it you know i'm like how could i be more (laughs) intelligent than putin Mm -hmm. i don't think i am so Mm -hmm. therefore i'm saying does he know something that i don't know or, or yeah. has he gone crazy? Yeah. Those, to me, is the only option. So anyway, the point he, is that I think so it's hard to get into him. his brain. Yeah. And so if he's gone off the rails, mm-hmm. he might, in his distorted brain, think that, yes, I can preserve power if I drop a nuke. It might strengthen my position. Now, mm-hmm. you and I can sit here calmly in these chairs and say that that's a crazy idea. Yeah. But we're trying to be, quote-unquote, logical. And mm-hmm. in his distorted mind, you understand what I'm saying. Yeah. Give me a percentage chance uh, that you think a nuke is going to be dropped. So, for a nuke to drop, first of all, there's got to be a situation where Putin thinks he has something to gain. Right. Uh, there has to be a target. In his mind. In his mind. Right. Yeah. And there we, has to that's be a, a hard thing to know. <laughs> there has to be a target that he can attack with a nuke to achieve the goal that he has in his mind. Mm. And it's not an easy task to identify that type of target. Mm-hmm. Also, what kind of target would not... Um, evoke a similar or worse response. So, uh, there are a lot of questions. And if he does press that button, first of all, will the chain of command convey that order to the person in charge of the nuke? And will that person press the button? Right. Because there was some, I think, uh, uh, some Mr. Petrov, some sergeant mm. who saved the world from uh, yeah, I heard about that. from uh, nuclear catastrophe yeah. because he didn't believe the signal that that came in. I can put a link yeah. to that uh, what Richard is yeah. mentioning in the show notes. But yeah, that's an interesting tale that we got. It was a Russian who basically saved the planet Earth from World War Three. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So uh, and will that person press the button when he's ordered to? And if the be- button is pressed. Will many of these old uh, <laughs> old warheads have actually rusted. fire? That's <laughs> right. So, or, or when they land, will they actually detonate? Yeah. But, okay, uh, moving towards a percentage chance. So we see there's an, a clear escalation. Once One side does a bit more, another side does the, the next. And uh, Putin has been moving up the, the scale of es- escalation. So the recent attacks on energy infrastructure with the purpose of... Uh, basically making Ukrainians die of cold and starvation over the winter, that's an escalation. Right. 
Um, and the logic of war is such that the next step of escalation is always beneficial, or it appears to be the right thing to do right. in a war. Right. Um, because each step is kind of a, a decision beyond which there's no way back. Right. Um, and I think the only way that one side can act to de-escalate mm. is if the costs are so great that stopping the war is better than continuing it. Right. But the, the costs really have to be enormous for that to happen because society itself is, has been reoriented towards the war. Propaganda is focused on the war. And going against the, the narrative, going against your own ideology that you've been forcing on people for years mm-hmm. is political suicide. Right. And so that's why de-escalation is difficult. And so it's possible that, you know, after a few more levels of escalation, that it could come to that. So, I, okay, I'd say one in five chance. Okay. One in five. And, and would you, and that's a strategic, sorry, a, a tactical nuke, which is a lower grade yield nuke. I yeah, yeah. Here's one scenario that was thrown out on Twitter by a Russian Tatar, who's a his, his, history and military specialist. More history than military, but... So his scenario is kind of counterintuitive to, I think, the Western mind, and so it'll be interesting to your, your viewers. Right. So here's the idea. Uh, right now, in Putin's mind, and in the mind of Russia, Russians, uh, Russia is fighting a weaker enemy, Ukraine. Losing to Ukraine is unacceptable. It shows Russia's weakness. If Russia were fighting NATO, for example... Losing to NATO would be more or less respectable, if that makes sense. Right. Okay? Yeah, it's like the so United States losing to Mexico. Like, he can throw <laughs> up his hands and say, well, we were fighting a, okay. a, an yeah. enemy who was many times more Bigger. powerful right. than us. Yeah. Right. But it's hard to play the narrative right. if they lose to Ukraine. Right. So, if uh, Russia sees that it's losing, mm. it, could have, it could make some tact, tactical nuclear strike somewhere in Ukraine in order to evoke a NATO response, NATO would come in, for example, and totally destroy the Black Sea Fleet. And then that would shift the focus of attention from Russia fighting Ukraine to Russia fighting NATO. We're against everybody! And then after that, you know, Putin can throw up his hands and say, you know, well, we're forced to to stop our right. our military efforts because we're fighting a foe that is many times stronger than us. Right, right. And by this time, hopefully, people will, will have forgotten that the war was actually with Ukraine. <laughs> right, right, right. And then they and said, that, well, and, that, know, and that Russia started. Yeah. And okay, yeah. Too bad that uh, fifty thousand uh, Ukrainians uh, died. Soldiers, right. Russian soldiers died. Oh, too that, too, too oh, bad that we yeah. lost our entire Black Sea fleet. Right. Um, you know, we're d- we'll just have to live with this. But we're we're still victorious because NATO couldn't take our country. Right. Moscow right. still stands, except for Crimea, perhaps. Yeah, right. Moscow still stands. Right. And so by somehow switching the focus of attention from the from Ukraine as the enemy to NATO, the enemy as NATO as the enemy, that somehow this would allow uh, the Russian leadership to control the narrative and thus control, keep their hold on power. I actually think that's an interesting scenario and something to, uh, maybe that will help your listeners kind of grasp the, the logic between, that uh, Putin is dealing with. 
Tough stuff. Okay, yeah. so anyway, we're going to have Richard back on the next episode where we're going to talk about the nuances between all these different Eastern European countries, especially, you know, Ukraine and Russia. Like, how similar are they? Is, is Ukraine and Russia similar as United States, similar to Canada, that analogy? Or is that analogy break down in one way or another? And what is the future of Ukraine, future of Russia, and other parts of Eastern Europe? And finally, Georgia as well, where we're recording this. So if you want to hear that episode, make sure you subscribe and give this little video a thumbs up or tell other people about the podcast. This is France Tapon encouraging you to wander and learn. Thank you, Rick. And that ends this episode of the Wander Learn podcast, where we explore travel, technology, and transformation. If you'd like to see the show notes with links to what we've talked about, go to wanderlearn.com and click on this episode. If you'd like to connect with me, just remember F Tapon. That's my first initial and my last name. F Tapon is always my social media username. My website is ftapon.com. Do you want to leave me an anonymous voicemail where you can make a comment or ask a question? Then go to speakpipe.com slash ftapon. Furthermore, if you'd like to get rewarded for supporting my projects, then go to patreon.com slash ftapon. That's where you can pick up some remarkable rewards for as little as $2 a month. Now, five quick favors. Number one, subscribe to the WanderLearn podcast. Two, download it. Three, share it. Four, review it. And five, sign up for my newsletter at wanderlearn.com. Our theme music was composed by Eric Stratman. This is Francis Tapon encouraging you to wander and learn. Thank you.